scriptures, please, in your Bibles, flip to Acts chapter 16. Today, uh, we are talking about my oikos. And if you've never heard that word before, I will describe and qualify what I mean by that during the course of this particular message. Acts chapter 16, we're going to read verses 30 to 34. If you remember from last week, we are in Macedonia. Uh, Lydia was saved. Um, things were happening. A slave girl uh, who was demon-possessed was healed. And so Paul and Silas were brought before the authorities in this uh, new land. And uh, they were arrested and they were thrown into the, the center, uh, inner rooms of uh, the prison. And something amazing happened where they were praising God and praying. And at midnight, the Lord just, just dispatched angels and they were released. And this jailer was just afraid for his life and he wanted to kill himself. And uh, Paul stops him from committing suicide. And we kind of bring up uh, the reading on what his response is now to after seeing uh, the prisoners being freed in the middle of the night. Verse 30. And after he brought them out, he said, this is the jailer, sirs, and he's speaking to Paul and Silas and company, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What, what a, how amazing is this? This guy was brought from suicide to salvation in the span of minutes. I mean, I mean talk about like a, a swing here, right? This is what's going on here. He's like, what must I do to be saved? And they said, verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Okay. As you see here, that the faith of this jailer, that what happened to this man on that middle of the night affected not only him, but those who he considered his household. Okay. And so there was almost an assumption okay, that when he was saved, that the faith that he had, in a sense, would spill over into his family and household. Okay. It happened with Lydia a couple of weeks ago, right? Where Lydia, the seller of purple, was praying at that riverside, and Paul goes there and he speaks, and somehow Lydia was saved, and through that it says also her household was saved. And so when we see in Scripture here that we rarely see salvation as this isolated incident, and it has no spillover, right? Whether it was a person who was demon-possessed, healed, and then he goes and he tells people about it. Whether it was a person who was lame from birth, being healed, and then he goes and other people are healed from it. Whether it be Lazarus who was dead and raised to life, and then other people hear about it. And there seems to be this thing in the New Testament where when one person has faith and it is rooted deeply in his or her heart, somehow other people get saved by this. Okay. 
And this we see all of the time in the Bible. Okay? And it's so different from kind of like our individualistic nature and culture nowadays, isn't it? Where we keep good things to ourselves or when we're saved, we have all these other people around us that I don't want to impose on and my faith just stays with me and it doesn't infect the people that are around me that are non-believers. And it's in a sense so contrary to what I read about in the Bible. Where when a person encounters Jesus, gives his life over to Jesus, there is now a lifelong pathway of discipleship and evangelism for this individual. But nowadays in our, in our culture, there is a sense that we come to faith in Jesus so that we have in a security of eternal life. And then from there, we just kind of go about our life as is now with Jesus. But the transformation that we see here of this jailer, it's made evident because his entire household believed. There's got to be something real that was happening in this man's life for this to have occurred. And this, oikos, is what we're talking about today. Let me define oikos, because it might be a word that you've never heard before. Okay? Oikos is a Greek word. It means, very literally, a house, more symbolically, the inhabited home, or the persons forming a family, and in a spiritual sense, it can also mean the family of God. Okay? So it has strong family overtones to it. Okay? And so the idea of household is absolutely key when we come to this idea of what oikos is. But our culture and the New Testament have, in a sense, kind of like a very differing idea of the word household. Because when we say household, we think of nuclear family, don't we? Like, if we're married, we think of our wife or our, our husband, our spouse and our kids. If we're not married, we think of our parents, right? Our siblings. And so when we think of household, we think of nucle nuclear family. But in the New Testament, there was a much broader understanding of this word household. That when we read about how the Bible uses that and what was kind of common in that particular setting, the word household really encompassed your neighbors, your friends, the people you bump shoulders with, right? And it was a larger group than just your sister or your brother or your parent or your spouse. And it was probably around like 8 to 16 folks, okay? And so these were the people that you had meaningful connections with. Okay, you consider them kind of, in a sense, your household. Okay? And I connected with them. They knew me. I know them. And there was a sense of friendship, of love, of sacrifice. There was this idea that uh, we are connected in life. And it was a slightly broader understanding than just kind of like my, my pop and my mom. Okay? And so I, I, I want to adopt this New Testament understanding of oikos. I want us to think about when we are called to reach our household or our family, when this jailer was saved and his household believed, was it just his wife and kids if he had them? Okay. Who was included in that? And I think we can look to other parts of Scripture to be able to inform this particular passage and all, this idea of household. Okay. And so if I am saved, if you are saved, if Christ is in us, how does that affect our oikos? Okay, how does that affect that? I think one very powerful verse that informs this idea of household or home is a, 
it, it, sorry, that's not Ephesians. It should actually be Mark chapter 5, verse 19. If you want to write that down. Mark 5, verse 19. This is when Jesus had healed a man who was possessed by a legion of demons. And this man is now healed, right? And he wants to follow after Jesus. I want to go where you're going, he's thinking. And these, these are the words that Jesus had for this man that was healed. Go home. <laughs> go home. Stop. Don't follow me. Go home to your friends. And you see here how when Jesus directs this man to go home and how he is now to then influence the people in his home with what he has experienced now, there is now a broader understanding of what he is to do. So go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. And this is thematic through the New Testament. That when a person comes to faith in Jesus, life has been changed by God. There is now a commissioning of His life. And so you find in Scripture that new believers were some of the most passionate believers. They were some of the most dedicated and diligent ones that would go out immediately. And there was a sense of a first love just ignited in their lives and they would go out and share the gospel. All right? John chapter 4, when Jesus was in the region of Samaria, right? And there was a well and a woman was drawing water. He, he brushes up next to her and has a conversation and that shocks her. That shocks everyone else around. He's a Jew. She's a Samaritan. They don't do that type of thing. And suddenly Jesus really pries into her heart, asking some provoking questions. And she's like, whoa, how do you know all of this? She drops her water pot, goes back home, and starts telling people about this. And it's not just her family that came. If you look in John chapter 4, it was almost the entire village of Samaria that came, right? The place that she was coming from. And they're coming back now. And they're listening because this woman said, hey, come now. You've you got to hear this guy, this prophet. He's telling me everything that he, I don't know how he knows. And so he's going back. And they now are like, we believe not because of your word to that woman. That group is saying, we believe because we've heard for ourselves. And you find in Scripture that belief, almost in a sense, equated to fervent witness. That there was a connection that was undeniable. That, that salvation in Scripture wasn't just an insurance policy for heaven. It wasn't just a ticket to the pearly gates. It wasn't just saying, now, okay, now I'm safe. I got heaven and I'm good. It was so much more than that. That salvation in, the, in Scripture, what we find is, is a transformation of life, a different trajectory altogether, where it would be that people weren't afraid to sell their possessions, where people who had defrauded, uh, frauded other people, they weren't afraid to pay them back because they, weren't, they were knowing that a decision for Jesus was actually a life decision, one that encompassed every sphere of their life. And this is what we find, this jailer, He's connected to people in his life and he has now received Jesus, believing in him. And then it's natural that the people that he loves in his home, that this message would just, just overflow, spill into their lives. And this is what we find from this jailer's life. So I'm going to share a couple of things. Okay? Uh, first is, like, let's not overcomplicate things. 
I think too often we don't engage in sharing the love of God and our Christian witness with other people because we've overcomplicated it, right? Somehow, like, I feel like I have to memorize, like, four spiritual laws. I have to know these methods and progressions, and i got to have all of these memorized scriptures, and then from there i got to be able to answer that question or this question, and somehow I've overcomplicated it. And I've kind of just weaseled my way out of it through the chaotic thinking, right? It's really simple, actually. When I think about faith and evangelism, yes, approaches, those uh, methods, four steps, all that stuff, they have their place. But I, I, I can't leverage that. I don't drag somebody into heaven through the rationality of their minds. Right? People are brought to the feet of Christ because I lead them by the heart. And I need to start there at the heart, not, not up here. I need to start here. This is where I need to ask God to move. And just let me share two simple things, right? The first is this. Just genuinely encounter Jesus. That's it. It starts there. Like, I, I don't know Scripture. I haven't memorized it. I don't feel like I've grown in my faith. I, you know, forget all of that for a second for now. The genesis of faith and eventually evangelism is a genuine encounter with Christ. That's where it starts. That when I sing a song, I know who I'm singing to. That when I kneel and pray, I know that there's an ear inclined. That there is a God in heaven that cares and loves me. And he's leading me to that genuine, simple space. A child with his or her father. That space. That genuine encounter. That's where it begins. And we all can arrive at that place. Right? We can all be at different places or, or tiers of, of Christian growth. But we all can at least start there. Okay? That I know Jesus and he knows me. Right? As I, I go from that place, let me just take a natural next thing, okay? Without talking about methods and approaches and scriptures, let me just say this, that the first step is to genuinely encounter Jesus, and the second step is just to introduce people to that Jesus, right? Like how I've encountered him, right? I don't need to, to, to read a million books and tell others how other people have encountered Jesus. I just need to meet the guy, and then, when I talk to other people, I just need to introduce them to the Jesus that I met. Right? And I, I peel back all of the confusion and layers, and I, and I get to a place where I just know Jesus is a part of my life and He's real. And the reality of that faith tends to make a difference in the lives of the people that I have a meaningful connection with. Because if you think about oikos, it really is the people in my life that know me and I know. Okay? I go into the workspace and there might be hundreds, if not thousands of people that work in your company. Right? But there are maybe one or two that you have a decent connection with, you eat lunch with, you might get together with on a timely basis. And there are people in your family or in the, in the groups of your friends that there are neighbors that you might have on the same block or in the same neighborhood 
that you connect with. Maybe not all of your neighbors, but some of them. And of these people that you have a meaningful connection with, the oikos way of evangelism is simply introducing those folks to the Jesus that you've met. It's, it's relational. And it comes to the heart. And something happens there. And you can have these blanks for you in your sermon outlines. You can fill them. The two factors that influence in evangelism of our oikos the most, the two greatest influences to us reaching out to our friends and family are these two, integrity and life transformation. Why do I say integrity? I say integrity because, like I said, those folks know us, they know us the best. Like they know if our value systems have changed, right? They know what we're really seeking after. They, they either live with us or, or talk to us on a regular basis. They hear what's coming out of our lives. And they can be, in a sense, accurate judges of, am I living the life of the person that I'm actually following? Right? And so integrity matters. Integrity is terribly important for the early Christians. They understood that when the message of Jesus and of faith was demonstrated by the friends and family members, that that had a profound impact into the effectiveness of the gospel in their lives. Right? That if I have a, a parent or a spouse or a brother or a sister and I, 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 there's a, something that I see in their lives, that there is a genuineness and, a, and an integrity of how, what they say they are, they actually live, that has a powerful influence over me. And I tend to take their words more seriously. Right? Have you ever been passionate about something as simple as a restaurant? Have you ever been passionate about a company or a product, a service? And have you ever just loved it so much you just naturally talk about it because you know it works? And that tends to work when you reach out and you talk about that to the people that are connected to you. You're probably eating at that restaurant next weekend. You're probably buying those products pretty soon. You're going to be a patron of those establishments, a customer of those companies. Because when I just genuinely love something and I share that love with people, somehow that's infectious. That's a form of integrity, right? And it's the same with our faith in Jesus. When the faith that I have in Jesus, it is real in my life, just that fact alone speaks volumes that our life is just a megaphone of the gospel, right? It's a megaphone of it. I love what the, the mid-19th century essayist by the name of Ralph Emerson said. What you are shouts so loudly in my ear, I cannot hear what you say. What you are, it is so loud in my ear, I can't even hear what you're saying. That the loudest voice for the gospel is a life that is genuinely met with Jesus. And that is connected to life transformation, isn't it? That when a life has truly been transformed, when, when, when the old has passed, as it says in Scripture, and the new has come, that is when we know a life has been transformed. Right? That if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, it says in Scripture. Right? That a worldview has been saved. That our value systems have been touched and transformed even. 
the things that we're striving for in life, it wasn't as it was before Jesus was there. Maybe I was only striving after money or positions or love and relationships, but now post Jesus in my life, there has been a change in that trajectory, those values and desires that He has touched that, that I'm a new person, I've been born again. That's another theme in Scripture. Old is gone, new has come. That transformation, right? I think of this as the great commission of the Old Testament, Psalm 66, verse 16. It says this, Come and hear, all you who fear God, and I will tell what He has done for my soul. I love this verse. Come in here. I want to share something with you, right? And what he says is, I want to share with you what God has done for my soul. Not what I perceive him to do. Not what I think is possible. But I want to tell you how my life has changed because God has done something, right? And I think about this for a second. A lot of the times in my life or in our lives, I think we can't say this. Right? We can't say what God has done for me because we really haven't asked Him of anything. Right? We haven't prayed for stuff for God. God, would you do this in my life? I believe you can. Right? And when I step out in faith and I actually experience something that I could have lost something, where I take a risk for God and I step out and I see that God can be faithful in those moments, that is when my faith heightens and ratchets up. Because I experienced something. That's why Scripture holds testimony in such high regard. That in terms of spiritual warfare, a person's testimony is held up there. Why? Because this is tangible. This is something that has been experienced. This is something that has been done in somebody's life. If you were to say that, what God has done for you, what would be the list? What would be on there? What has God done? How have you sought His favor, His direction in life? What are the things you've laid down on an altar and said, God, I fervently seek this. What have you prayed for? What have you striven after? And what have you believed in God to do? And as you think about that, step out. Seek God in greater ways. And as that happens, those things, God begins to, to move in your life. And He does powerful things. And those things just take our testimony and life transformation and really bring it to a space where we're able to say to others, I want to share with you. I know you're going through this, but I want to let you know that this is what God has done for me. And I know He can do it for you. And when that type of testimony and when that type of, of sharing happens in our oikos with those 8 to 16 folks that we meaningfully connect with, that trust us, that love us, that care for us, that do listen to our words, that when we can share it that way, something powerful happens. And so, oh, <clears throat> the second thing would just be as you think about that, I, that, that life transformation, it would be reaching into your circles, reaching into your oikos, your household, your family, your friends, your colleagues that you connect with. 
the neighbors that are next to you. And as you, you, you seek uh, God's blessing over their lives, reach out. You know, I think there's a, a lot of times, at least in my life, that I ask God, God, what's your will for this? Like, you have something like, do you want me to do this? If it's your will, da-da-da-da-da. I don't know if you've ever asked that or said that in your prayer life. I have, right? And there are certain things that, in, at least in my opinion, I don't think we need to ask if it's God's will, all right? Because it's already stated clearly for us in Scripture, right? Like, I don't think we need to ask God, God, is it your will for me to love my neighbor? I mean, it's, it's pretty simple, right? I don't think we need to ask God, God, if it's your will, should I help this person in suffering? I don't think we need to ask God, if it's your will, do you want me to turn the other cheek or serve in the capacity of my talent or present my tithe? I think we can pray, God, how, like the details of how we can actually live those out, those we can pray for discernment and wisdom, but actually stepping out and doing that, loving the neighbor, helping the suffering person, I think those are things that we can actually assume is the will of God because it's already stated for us clearly in Scripture. So you don't need to have a 30-minute prayer session with God. God, is it your will for me to da-da-da-da-da, love my neighbor? And I think reaching your oikos falls into that camp where God wants you and as a Christian, if you are already a follower of Jesus, God has a commission in your life to reach your household, your Jerusalem, your family for Christ. That you would be as the jailer, that your faith really meant that that faith would spill over into your family. Right? Now, faith is not by osmosis, right? Just because you believe, suddenly your unbelieving partner believes. That, it, it's not, it doesn't work that way, right? But when faith takes root in my heart, there is the call of God and it is a natural thing where God is calling me to reach my household, my oikos. And I think it can fall into that. And so I want to encourage you. I want to admonish you. I want to point you in that direction. God is calling you to reach your oikos. Those folks in your life that you know are not on a trajectory for heaven, are not on a life path of peace and of love, of true joy, and their value systems. Now, we're not perfect, and we can't judge. That's not what we're trying to do. But as we grow in faith, there are people around us in our, in our networks, in our circles, in our oikos, and we know we have words and a life testimony that can powerfully help and influence them. And if we have stood on the sidelines, if we have just allowed it, whether because of past difficulties or just for whatever reasons, I want to admonish it to get back on that. Not to coerce the subject, but to pray first. And that's what these 14 days of prayer, that's one of the things for it. We're going to be praying for specific people. Let's start there in prayer. Let's start just by asking God to move the heavens. Let's just by, start by asking God to touch a heart. Because human words in the end can never bring a person into heaven. It must be the Spirit of God that touches an individual. And have I prayed for my, my family? Have I prayed for my friends, my colleagues that I connect with? Have I really sought God's blessing over their lives? And I'm asking us to be able to do that. You know, 
there was a, a church um, kind of health and growth person that's kind of an expert in the area. And one of the things, I mean, his name is uh, Tom Rayner. He talks about these intersecting spheres of the person of faith that we touch, right? And essentially, our oikos is comprised as individuals in these four spheres. And the spheres are your biological sphere. That's who you're connected to by blood. Okay? Your geographical sphere is the people that are like your neighbors, like for example. Right? The people that just by, uh, in, by nature of your geography, where you are, right, that you are connected to. Okay? Uh, your vocation. Your vocation is by your work, your, your colleagues. Right? And the last one would be by, oh, well, I don't, sorry, there's two typos in one presentation. I am sorely disappointed in myself. Deeply. I just need to take a moment of silence for this. <laughs> oh, man. The last one is volitional. The people who you voluntarily associate with by sports, hobbies, okay? friendships can fall into this. Okay? So who you're related to by blood, who you're connected to by geography, by your vocation, or who you voluntarily connect with by activity. And within all of these spheres, there's a, there's a smaller subset within them that you have a deeper, meaningful connection with. And that's where you reside, the intersection of those four. And in that intersection of four, there's probably 8 to 16 people that you can identify here. Okay? There's probably 8 to 16, 2 to 4 within each sphere. Now, it's not a clean cut. Some might be bigger, some might be smaller. Okay? But generally speaking, it'll be about 8 to 16 people at the intersection of these four spheres who you have a connection with, who when you share words with them, that those folks will listen. That when you call them to come over, they'll be there. Okay? And that's the group I'm talking about right now. And as we move forward in our 14 days of prayer, I'm going to ask us to pray for those 8 to 16 people at the intersection here. I'm going to ask us just to commit first to pray for them. If, like Adina, what she mentioned during the beginning in the praise, you know, during the prayer time, if, if they're unsaved, pray for their salvation. If they're already saved, pray for their sanctification, their growth, that they would go closer to God. Okay? So you don't have to have all unbelievers on your list of oikos. Okay? And so pray for their salvation or their growth and discipleship in the faith. And so as I close, praise team, come back. We're going to close with just a couple of simple things. Number one, what we want to do is we want to pray. Right? And we want to start there. And we'll start from tomorrow, at least in our 14 days of prayer campaign. Okay? And uh, May that be a catalyst or a beginning of, of more of a movement of prayer in our church. But we want to pray together on the same vein, on the same topics each day. Okay? And so we'll start there by praying, identifying our oikos, praying for two a day at least. Okay, praying for our church, praying for the needs, desires that we have, praying for different things through these 14 days. Okay? We want to start there. We want to start by praying. We want to pray that people like the jailer are saved, people who are, on, uh, are marginalized or people who are at a place where they are wanting to commit suicide, that we go from suicide to salvation like this jailer. And if God will use you or me to be such an influence in a vehicle, so be it. But we want to start by prayer. And secondly, after we have prayed, 
after we are continually praying, it's just simply send out a personal invitation. You know, this guy, uh, Rainer, he said, most of the friends and family in our lives who do not come to church are unchurched, non-believers, but 80 to 90% of them would actually be willing to come if a friend or family member gave them a personal invitation, right? And a lot of the times I think uh, we, we heighten and we give too much credit to that fear of rejection because actually uh, they would be very receptive to that. So we want to pray up for them. We always want to say, God, fill those bowls for them. God, open their hearts, touch them, speak to them through frustration and joy and somehow prep them, open the doors so that when I personally invite them, that they'd be open to that. Invite them to Sunday here. Again, two weeks from now, Thanksgiving Sunday will be a perfect time. Invite them to that service, right? If they like a smaller setting, invite them out to a house church midweek. That's another great setting to invite somebody, okay? But let's start here. Let's start by prayer. Prayer is a church, believing. Just believing. And that Psalm 66, verse 16 will be something that we could say. Come, here, all you who fear God. And I want to tell you something. I want to tell you of all that God has done for me. May that be an invitation that you can give to folks. Amen. Amen.